This is Pamela Brewer. Gangs used to be, and perhaps still are for many people, the thought is that they are filled with evil, vile, and macho men. Mostly men, sometimes women, but pretty much really evil, violent, macho men. Today's guest has perhaps a different perspective that she can share with us. I'm very pleased to introduce to you Vanessa R. Panfil, Assistant Professor in the Department of Sociology and Criminal Justice at Old Dominion University in Virginia. Dr. Panfield, welcome to Mind Talk. Thank you. Thanks so much for having me. Now, you, you heard me describe what people very often think of as gangs. Um, they're they're horrible. They're evil. They're almost not even human. They're just out for violence and crime. Mm -hmm. You have written a book entitled The Gang's All Queer, which in and of itself sort of I know is going to make people say, wait, what? Uh, Tell us a little bit about the difference between uh, what your book is about and the description I've just given of how most people think about gangs. Yeah, absolutely. So I think that you're absolutely right that a lot of people have a perception that gang members are constantly involved in crime and violence and are uh, out there essentially to do harm to other people. That's their main focus. And also that uh, gang members, for the most part, are male and not only male, but hypermasculine and heterosexual. And this is really evident in the ways that we talk about gang members versus gay men or the ways that we depict them. Um, you know, so for example, if you do a Google image search of street gangster versus a Google image search for gay man, the images that come up are, are they almost couldn't be more different, right? We have a lot of stereotypes and expectations for what we expect gang members to be, and we have a lot of stereotypes and expectations for what we expect gay men to be. And for the most part, they really don't intersect. Um, And so the project that I uh, undertook, you know, that you mentioned my my book, The Gang's All Queer, The Lives of Gay Gang Members. um, In that book, I'm talking about the experiences of gay gang members. And I'll, I'll I'll go into a little more detail about how the book is structured. But when I tell people that I wrote this book about gay gang members, they they lean in, right? They did exactly what you say they did, right? They say, what? Gay gang members? They think they misheard one of the words that I said for precisely the reasons, you know, that that I just mentioned. Um, So so in my book, what what I talk about are – I I compare the experiences of men in different kinds of gangs. And so I talked to gay or bisexual identified men who were members of straight gangs, Uh, you know, so primarily heterosexual gangs. These are, uh, I guess you could characterize them as some of the traditional kinds of street gangs that you think of that are neighborhood based, um, that might have names like Bloods or Crips or that sort of thing. I compare uh, men who are, again, gay, but in primarily straight gangs, to men who are gay and in primarily gay gangs. And as you can imagine, their experiences are very different by the, just because of the ways that those gangs are structured. And so as you can imagine, the men who were gay, but who were in straight gangs, did face those expectations for masculinity 
um, and heterosexuality. And a lot of them were not out to their gangs because they didn't perceive that they could be out without encountering problems within those gangs because of these hypermasculine heterosexual expectations in those gangs. Whereas the men in gay gangs uh, were, were in gangs made up of other gay people. And so there wasn't an issue in terms of them coming out because everyone had some amount of shared experience as it related to being gay. And so even though they still had particular expectations for their members, the expectations for their masculinity were much more relaxed as they were compared to um, straight gangs. And I can talk in any in any direction in terms of the other differences between those kinds of gangs or what their experiences were, um, because a lot of the book is a, is a comparative portrait. Well, let, you mentioned the blood. So let's talk about uh, gangs that people are almost generically aware of the bloods okay. the crips um ms15 is it ms15 i think uh, 13, ms13 13 13 um so you know these are gangs that very often people are aware of certainly police are aware of mm-hmm. are you saying that within these gangs there might be some gay men who are just not out in the gang yeah, I'm absolutely saying that. And I have several pieces of evidence that I can that I can talk about. But so for one, um, something else I, I want to mention about gangs is that even though many neighborhood based gangs might adopt the name uh, like blood or crypt or they might adopt the symbols or the colors or the mythology of those gangs, it doesn't necessarily mean that they're connected to a nationwide network of gangs or that sort of thing. Um, research in in the Midwest and specifically in Columbus, Ohio, which is where I did my, my gang research, finds that a lot of gangs are what we refer to as homegrown. You know, they're, they're drawn from the people in those communities. And even though they might adopt those symbols and colors and names, it doesn't necessarily mean that they're, you know, attached to a, to a wider network of gangs. Um, so, so that's one thing to say. Um, but, but yes, uh, absolutely, the, some of the, the young men who I talked to in my study were members of what we would consider to be those traditional gangs who we hear about on the news or, or who we know that, that communities are trying to control. Um, and, and they reflected on that. You know, they said, look, this is, this is a gang that's been active in my neighborhood for a long time. Um, this is a gang that, if, you know, if you're going to be gang-involved, in this neighborhood, this is the gang you're expected to join, but I couldn't come out within this gang because then people would perhaps make assumptions about us. They would assume that we're not as tough as other gangs. They would assume that, you know, oh, you have gay guys in your gang, so you must not be really serious. You know, you must not, uh, you must not be able to fight. You must not uh, care about uh, status. You, you know, and so they didn't want to bring on those, those um, assumptions onto their gang or onto themselves they didn't want to open themselves up for um, uh, challenges or violence or negative repercussions. They were concerned about about um, being being the target of uh, physical violence if they had come out because of what that might communicate to their gangs. Some of them did come out to their gangs, um, but uh, sometimes they did have negative consequences and sometimes they didn't. Um, so again, that's that's something else I can talk about if you're interested. But um, but also, I want to say that, that since I've been doing this work, um, and I started uh, the process to, to conduct this study uh, uh, 10 years ago, so, so I, I'm sort of known as the, the gay gangs person, or you know, the, the, the person who studies gay gangs, and so many gang scholars come up to me and they say, 
you know, hey, I, I heard about the work that you're doing, and I want you to know that, you know, I've been studying X, Y, and Z gang in Chicago, or I've been studying X, Y, and Z gang in LA, and I want you to know that I met a gay guy in this gang, and he's experiencing the kinds of things that you're talking about, or, you know, he was able to come out because he was the most, uh, he, he, he was the fighter who won the most fights, and he was the guy who could sell the most drugs, and nobody challenged him because he had achieved these other markers of success. And so I have all these other gang scholars saying to me, oh, yeah, I, I do know gay guys in gangs, but those guys never become the focus of the work that they produce. You know, the, they're never the, um, you know, they're sort of a, a passing mention, if that. There's a number of gang studies that say, you know, in a footnote or in one sentence, oh, and, and we did meet several gay or lesbian gang members, but they didn't come out because of you know, these negative expectations. And that was it. You know, there's one sentence somewhere or, or a footnote. And so, so young people, um, or how, how can I say this? Um, gay young people can be found in all types of, of social networks, all types of groupings. And that absolutely includes gangs. There, there are people listening who are saying, wow, I never thought about that. I never realized that. Okay, now that's really interesting, but why do I care? Mm-hmm. Right. Why right. is it important um, to research gangs and in particular gay gangs? Why does it matter? Right. No, and that's a really important um, question and, and a, an important issue. So, I mean, for one, I, I think that people – for the most part, do think it's important to study gangs generally, right? Um, because people are concerned about uh, gang violence, they're concerned about uh, drugs being sold in their communities, uh, they're concerned about young people's uh, outcomes, right? Um, and, and, and what is going to happen to young people and, and what sorts of things they're getting involved in. So I think generally, as a society, we're pretty interested in gangs more broadly defined. And there can be a tendency for people to say, okay, well, gay gang members, this is a niche topic, you know, this is a very narrow topic, or, you know, how did you, how did you get into this very narrow area? And I don't perceive it to be narrow at all, because a lot of the themes that come up in my work are about being gang or crime involved, but they're also primarily about growing up gay and the ways that people have experienced homophobia or uh, misogyny as a result of them, of the way that they present their gender or the fact that young, that other people perceive them to be gay or the ways that they were treated. And so even though my book is absolutely about gangs and violence and crime, my book is also very much about being gay and what that means to be gay, not only in a society where historically um, you know, narratives about gay people have been uh, people, people who are gay, even in committed same sex relationships have been compared. You know, those relationships have been compared to incestuous relationships or bestiality. Right. So, so gay people have been, 
um, maligned in, in many ways in our society and face a number of challenges in terms of finding their identities, coming out as gay, um, navigating their life as an openly gay person or as a person who feels like they can't be openly gay, right? So my, what I would argue is that even though I think it's important to study gay gangs, um, what I think is, is really important is to think about the choices that young gay people are making as a result of, you know, uh, society or, or um, negative um, things that the negative things that they encounter that we really, you know, we don't want them to be making those choices. Okay. So I'll, I'll give you some, some examples of what I'm talking about. Um, so uh, in my book, um, one of the things that I talk about is how the men in my study, uh, when they were, when they were called insulting names for being gay, um, I don't know if I can say it, but it starts with an F. Um, when they're called insulting names for being gay, they would respond with violence because they were defending themselves. They were defending their identity, defending their reputation. Um, and so again, what, what can we do better when we learn that these men think that the most important way to prevent future anti-gay harassment is to literally fight back and build a reputation for toughness? You know, so, so what does it mean that young people feel like they have to physically fight back when they're harassed for being gay? Or in my study, um, some of the young men came out to their family members, and their family members reacted more negatively to them coming out as gay than they did to the fact that they were in a gang or that they had been convicted of a violent offense Interesting. or that they had done several years in prison for an offense. So again, just to repeat, their families reacted more negatively to their disclosure that they were gay than to the crime or violence or gang involvement that, that they had, that they had had. And so again, you know, how the young person's life affected when their family responds more negatively to them coming out as gay than to a violent conviction or a prison sentence. It's interesting. Um, it's okay to be, it, it, it's okay to be a criminal. It's okay to go in jail, but please, for goodness sakes, don't be gay. Yeah. And, and it's not to say that their families thought it was okay necessarily to do those things, sure. but on the comparative, you know, comparatively their, their families were better able to, to deal with, with, um, you know, their, their gang involvement and their convictions in some cases than, than their gay identity. Did and you, so again, oh, go ahead, go ahead. did you find that the, there were any racial, uh, breakdowns between the families who were more, uh, concerned about the family member being gay or less concerned? Any racial differences? Yeah, so my uh, sample, even though uh, the men who I talked to, it is a, it, it, I was able to um, talk to racially diverse people, the majority of my sample, uh, almost 90%, are young men of color. So African-American men, Latino men, multiracial men. Um, and so I didn't really see a racial difference in terms of the ways that their families reacted, but they did try to make sense within interviews of um, issues related to, you know, so for example, some of them talked about perceiving intense homophobia within black communities or specifically within black churches. And so some of them wanted to talk about that within the interview. And then some of them didn't necessarily attribute it to their racial or ethnic communities, but instead attributed it to their religious communities. You know, so people were telling them it was a sin, uh, you know, that they, they needed to, to, to pray more and, and things like that. Um, 
so I didn't see racial differences in those ways, but, but like I said, the men in my study did want to talk through those sometimes um, and think about what, what it meant to, in, most of, in the case of most of the young men in my study, what it meant to be both black and gay. Um, and, and some of the research that exists suggests that, uh, that young African-American gay or bisexual men perceive um, or can perceive homophobia in their racial and ethnic communities, but, um, but then also perceive racism in gay communities. So, so some of them feel like they have to choose either being gay or being African-American. Um, and, and a lot of this research focuses on young people in schools and the ways that schools are segregated and the ways that services are segregated and, and things of that nature. And so they, they often did want to talk through those issues um, but I wouldn't say on the whole that, that a lot of them attributed uh, their family's reactions to their race. It was much more likely for them to attribute it to their religious background. Interesting. All right. <clears throat> the name of your book, again, is The Gang's All Queer. So the, the gangs that, are, that, that identify themselves as being gay gangs, is, is that part of the membership requirement that you're gay? Or are these gangs that are gay and straight – and do they, are they known sort of in the community as being, oh, that's the gay gang, that's the straight gang? Okay, so uh, your first question regarding, you know, is it a, is it a membership requirement? Um, it, it uh, in some ways I would say yes, um, but, but I'll explain what I, what I mean or where my, where my hesitation is. So most of the gay gangs, um, let me start over. So with the straight gangs, as I mentioned, these were neighborhood groups that existed and they joined them often through some sort of ritualistic way of getting in. But the gay gangs were, for the most part, friendship groups that had organically changed uh, into gangs over time. So these were groups of young gay men who met each other through various places and various connections and started hanging out together. And then as they were uh, trying to make a name for themselves or just in terms of trying to make, trying to gain a reputation within the gay community, maybe they had conflicts with other gay groups, maybe they had conflicts with straight groups. And some of them said, you know, and one day we decided we were going to make, we were going to give ourselves a name and make ourselves a legit crew. Like that was a, that was a quote from somebody in the study. You know, we wanted to make ourselves legit. And so it was much more likely for the gay gangs, as I said, to change over time into something that they defined as more of a gang than, than a friendship group as it started out. And so because of that, most of the men who I talked to who were in gay gangs were much more likely to have actually formed a gang than to have joined a gang. I they see. were there from the beginning. Their group changed. And so, yes, as they took on more people for the most part, these were other gay, lesbian, or bisexual people. Um, it, this isn't to say that some of the gangs, you know, didn't have people who they claimed as part of their group, you know, who, who were straight. But for the most part, the gay gangs were 100% or almost 100% gay, lesbian, or bisexual people versus the straight gangs, which, um, you know, they were much more likely to join those gangs. And, and some of them, they said, oh, there's nobody else in this gang that's gay besides me. You know, they, they didn't think that anyone else was gay. But within that group that, that of straight gangs broadly defined, in the book, I actually separate out a few of those gangs who are technically primarily straight, but they have a critical mass 
of gay, lesbian, or bisexual people. So about a quarter to almost one half. And when they had that many people who were gay, lesbian, or bisexual, the dynamic of that gang was was very different than those straight gangs. They looked more like gay gangs in that the gay people in those gangs could be out, could be open about their identity. Those gangs were more likely to have been, you know, those ones where youth helped form them and not necessarily join them. And so even though those are primarily straight gangs, because they now have this critical mass of GLB people, that changes the dynamic that that allows them to be open. Um, The ways that they sometimes would describe it as being the real me, you know, in ways I can't be elsewhere. These are people I grew up with, so they know the real me, that sort of thing. So, so even though those were technically primarily straight gangs, because, because there were more gay people in them, it changed that dynamic. Um, and so, again, it, it, the book is actually comparative across these three groups, but, you know, uh, the, those groups that I mentioned that have a critical mass, I call them hybrid gangs because they're sort of a mix of gay and straight gangs. They have, they have elements or, or um, characteristics of both. But that's, I'm just trying to get at your example of when you said, you know, do they, <laughs> is that a requirement for membership? Uh, uh, no, uh, n- not necessarily. That's usually how it works out. But in these other groups that were more mixed, there wasn't necessarily an expectation that if you were gay, you, you had to be in the closet. It was much more likely that you could be open, but those were still primarily straight gangs. Let's talk about the royal family. You described it as not a typical gang. What was atypical about the royal family? Um, yeah, so the royal family, um, some of the ways that they were atypical was that they, even though they said, like, yes, our group is a gang, uh, people recognize us as a gang. Uh, you know, we, we know that the things that we do are things that gangs do, but it's, they would say, we're much more like a family. You know, we try to encourage each other to do things like a family. You know, we try to work together. We try to help each other do better. Um, and so they, you know, I saw, for example, them trying to help each other get jobs, um, you know, giving advice about, oh, you, you, maybe you can go back to school or you can go to this program and you can try to get this, uh, you know, this educational degree that you hadn't gotten, you know, some, some of the men in my study had dropped out of high school or were in alternative schools and, you know, they were, they were trying to get their lives back on track as they called it. Um, you know, so the, their gang would help them do that. And also their gang was really interested in focusing on uh, the ways that they were like other young people. So they said, you know, we, Yes, we do this gang stuff, but we like to go out to clubs. We like to uh, go out to eat. You know, we like to have people over to the house. We like to compete in, in dance uh, uh, dance competitions, uh, and most of these were underground um, dance competitions, Vogue balls, if, if your if you're, uh, listeners have heard of those. But, you know, so, so they wanted to focus on the, the things that other young people do that they also did. Um, and one of their focuses, uh, and this was true actually for all of the gay gangs, one of their focuses was on what they called becoming known. So having a persona or a, a, being known as a gay man, right? So being publicly out, being respected, um, being perceived as uh, a man who could take care of himself, who um, you know could could achieve. Um, markers of success, you know, have a job or make, make money for himself or, or that sort of thing. Um, uh, look good. They, they, they prize looking good. Uh, they prized, uh, uh, you know, having large friendship networks. And so again, they wanted to become known, but one of the ways that they became known was through fighting other gay gangs, especially at 
uh, gay clubs or at gay themed club nights. Um, and so they absolutely would say, oh yeah. And then this time we got in this fight with this gay group at this club or this, this time, you know, we beat up this group of straight guys who is harassing us for being gay or this time we got into this fight. And so they still absolutely would say, you know, no, don't, don't mess with us. We, we will fight you. But they were much more interested, like I said, in talking about how they felt like a family, how they felt like they really took care of each other. They felt like they had decision making, you know, the ability to make decisions within their group. They felt like they were valued. They felt like they were close friends. Um, like, so, for example, I asked them to, to say, I asked them to mark on a bullseye target, you know, where they thought they were in the gang. You know, were they more core? Were they more out on the periphery? And they wanted to know how many people can fit in this middle ring. You know, they, they, they all thought they were core. Um, uh, they That's all thought they were, they were a meaningful member of the group. That's interesting. And is that the same in, in heterosexual groups? I mean, my, my sense was not that there were real no. layer, levels of, of importance, if you will. Yeah, you're absolutely right. And um, so nobody, no one who I talked to in a straight gang put themselves within the inner, like the most inner ring of the, of the bullseye target, even people who had been gang involved for a decade and who were very much involved in their gangs, uh, drug sales or, or other crimes. They did not put themselves in that center of the target because they didn't necessarily perceive that they, um, you know, even though they thought they were important and they could make decisions, they didn't necessarily perceive them as being that close to the center because of the way they felt about their gang. So some of them thought of their gangs as, um, oh, how can I explain it? Um, uh, so some of the young men who had shorter gang histories, you know, so maybe a year or two or, or three years, they would say, well, you know, your gang is down for you until you go to the hospital or until you go to jail and they don't come to see you or they don't write you letters. Um, and so some of them had really cynical views about actually how close knit or or loyal uh, their gangs were on the whole. But the, the members of the gay gang did not did not have you. Um, it, 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 we just have a few minutes left, but but I did want to touch on uh, more of what you said about internalized homophobia. In that, mm-hmm. um, it's been linked to several significant health related behaviors. Uh, can you say a little bit more about that? Yeah. So, I mean, we know from uh, several decades of studies that internalized homophobia can be linked with um, self-harm. So uh, either self-harm or uh, suicidal thoughts or actions or attempts. Um, It can be linked with alcohol and drug use. It can be linked with um, depression and anxiety. It can be linked with an, um, an interest in not getting to know other gay people in uh, not seeking support for being gay. So internalized homophobia is connected with a ton of very negative health risks. Um, and so the challenge there is, is um, uh, figuring out ways that people can talk about their identities where they don't feel like they're under a microscope or they don't feel that someone's going to be uh, going to judge them. Um, you know, so, so that people can talk about their identity and can try to uh, meet other people and gain support from other people. But again, that means that they have to be some amount of out or some amount of, you know, w- willing to talk to people or willing to, right. um, to seek support. And I don't necessarily mean support from a therapist, but just support from a community group or a friendship group or that sort of thing. And so it's really challenging because people who 
who perceive who, who feel um, strong, you know, feel very strongly about uh, these homophobic beliefs, right? Where they where they say, "Well, I am no good, and I I shouldn't be gay, and being gay is a sin, and and I shouldn't, you know, I should try to do something else with my life." People who feel that very strongly are less likely to reach out for help because they don't True. necessarily want to tell people about that, about being gay, because they perceive it negatively. So the issue is uh, having more conversations generally where we talk about, uh, you know, diversity and um, that, that people should uh, feel free to uh, uh, come out and, and be able to talk about that. And I think it's, it's challenging uh, in some areas of the country or some areas of the world. Um, politically, it can be challenging. Um, yeah, so, so there's a lot of a lot of negative health outcomes that are associated with internalized homophobia. But um, internalized homophobia does tend to re- be reduced when people do form community with other gay people, or at least find people who are supportive of their gay identity. So when they receive positive messages about being gay, that can have an effect on people's uh, perceptions of homophobia and thus their own internalized homophobia. Dr. Vanessa R. Panfill, author of The Gang's Old Queer, The Lives of Gay Gang Members. Thank you so much for joining us today and sharing the fruits of your research and your writing with us. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me. And folks, thank you for joining us today on this edition of Mind Talk. Mind Talk is available to you daily on demand by going to mindtalk.org. That's M Y N D T A L K dot O R G. Mind Talk is not intended to replace any work that you might choose to do with a medical, mental health, or other professional. Mind Talk is also available to you by going to the iTunes or Google Play Store to download the Mind Talk app. And remember, always, if it's unacceptable, then that's what it is unacceptable. You take care. Thank you.